Uh, you may be seated. Well, um, as uh, we've been talking about this morning, we're continuing in our study of the book of Galatians. And uh, if you've been with us, um, you know that when Paul writes this letter, it's one of the first letter that he had written of the 13 books of the Bible that he's written, um, he's really fired up. I mean, he's, he's downright agitated, just to be honest. And the reason why is at issue here is the most important question for all of humankind, for all of human history. Now, I know that sounds pretty melodramatic. The most important question for all of humankind, for all of human history. But what is that issue here is the question, what is the gospel? What is God's plan? What is in the infinite mind of God? His plan for redeeming, for buying back, for rescuing his fallen human race that he created in his image. What's that plan? In other words, what's the gospel? It really is a life or death deal with eternal consequences. And uh, like the scene, I can't believe I'm using a Karate Kid uh, analogy for the most important question of all of history. Uh, but, but like the scene in the Karate Kid 2 where uh, daniel San is having to go into the arena to fight Chosen, uh, Miyagi's brother's protege, and he's threatening to kill a girl unless daniel San comes and fights him. Miyagi turns to daniel San and says, this is not tournament, this is real. And, uh, and again, can't believe we're using a Karate Kid analogy here, but this is real. This is the essence of, of what the question is for all of humankind. And this is why Paul is so aggressive in his writing. See, we're wrestling with the essential issues of the faith. And these, this church, these young Christians, were in danger of getting the essentials wrong. And we can fall into that exact same misunderstanding that they fell into if we're not careful. That's why it's really important that we understand what's going on here. Now, again, the writer of this letter is Paul. I remember years ago I had a chance to go hear Dr. Steve Brown. He was preaching at Northland. And if you know Steve, he's a counselor, radio personality here in town, and he's got the deepest voice that God ever created in a human being other than James Earl Jones. All right? I mean, it's really a beautiful voice. I could listen to it all day. And in that great voice of his, he says, I want you to get to know the Apostle Paul. He's a friend of mine. And I just oh, that was great. And it's so true. I just... I have been a student of the writings of Paul, and he's a friend of mine, and I want you to get to know him. He is one powerful individual that God has used mightily. And so his job, his commission, is Jesus chose him specifically to be the one to take the gospel to the Gentile world. In other words, to leave Israel, to leave the nation of Israel, go beyond the, the Jewish world, if you will, and to enter into the rest of the world, the Gentile world. And Paul's job was to bring the gospel there. And the good news is he was really successful. One of the first places he went was this Galatian region, which we would know today as modern-day Turkey. And a number of Gentiles were coming to know Christ. And then as a result of that, what ended up happening is Jewish teachers of the law heard about this, and so they scrambled in as Paul kind of went on to the next thing, and they began to teach these young Christians falsehood. They began to teach them that, yeah, you can believe in Jesus and that stuff, but you need to still keep the law. 
In particular, you need to get circumcised and you need to uphold the dietary laws of the Old Testament if you want to be acceptable to God. And so Paul catches wind of this and he writes this letter uh, in response to that. For us today, we aren't Jews and we don't maybe know everything about the Old Testament law. For us to translate it today, it would be us thinking that we have to do good and be good for God to grant us salvation, for us to earn God's favor through our own efforts. And this is what has Paul really, really upset. If you remember in chapter 1, this was his response to this false teaching. If I or an angel from heaven were to come and preach to you a different gospel than the one we preached to you originally, let that person be anathema. Let that person be cut off eternally from Christ. He says, because the gospel they're preaching is no gospel at all. It's not the gospel. So Paul is saying that it is essential to get the essentials right. Now, would you turn, um, if you have your Bibles, to uh, Galatians chapter 3, starting verse 23. Uh, if not, you can follow along on your phone or in your bulletin. Um, I left my Bible on my credenza this morning, so I grabbed Gary's. This thing is awesome. It's so annotated, and it's got notes everywhere, and that's exactly what you want from your pastor. Uh, he knows the Bible, and that's a good thing. All right, verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For you, uh, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to the guardians and the trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights as sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, since you are a son of God. Uh, since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. This is God's word. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Notice in verse 33, before you're coming to this faith. So Paul is doing something that he frequently does in his various writings. He's actually giving us a before and after picture, who we were and what our life was like before Christ and what it is now that we've come to faith. And I love this contrast. I'm sure all of you have seen before and after pictures for uh, working out and trying to lose weight. Um, I'm sure everybody's seen those, right? Well, I have a confession to make. I, I did that once, um, and, uh, and I actually have the pictures. Now, I'm really shy with those pictures. I don't, I, don't, I don't like to make those pictures available anywhere, but back in my early 40s, I was diagnosed with heart disease, and I had started to get out of shape, and I was dealing with all the emotions of that, and so I knew I had to get in shape. So I came across this program called Body for Life, 
and it's intense. It's high intensity training coupled with rigorous eating regimen, but man, all the pictures of the people was like it was too good to be true. It's like, really? They're seeing that kind of transformation, so I decided to do it. But to enter into the thing, you gotta take the before and you gotta take the after picture, and so I, I did, and it worked. I lost 20 pounds. I was 43 years old and I was 10% body fat. I was like, this is really, really cool. And so, um, you know, I'm glad that I did it. Well, years came by later on that uh, one of the guys that I was working with here early uh, in my days at Summit, he was actually doing the program, but he wasn't so modest with his pictures. He was posting everything on Facebook. I mean, even the before stuff. And I was like, oh no, that's not, don't do that. And, uh, and, and so, but I encouraged him. I said, hey, you know, I've done this program and it really works, so stick with it, go for it. And he goes, well, did you do the pictures? I said, well, yeah, but I don't show them to anybody. He goes, oh, come on. So after days of badgering, I finally showed him the pictures. And let me just say that his response was really encouraging to me. So I was, I was happy for that. And, uh, and so obviously I think I need to kind of consider doing Body for Life all over again here. Um, but I, I, I use that analogy because this is exactly what Paul's doing here. He's giving us that before picture, and it's not pretty. And he's contrasting it to an after picture uh, and describing a metamorphosis that we can hardly fathom just how glorious it is. It really is an amazing transformation juxtaposed one next to the other. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna look at the before picture and the after picture. So let's go back again to verse 23 and, and let's start to bring the before picture into view. Paul says, before the coming of faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was a guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. So he describes that before faith, we were like a child who's underage, who's under a tutor, under a guardian, under a, a legal person whose job it was is to get us to adulthood. In verses four through one through three, he develops it more and he's saying what I am saying um, in chapter four, one through three, is that as we're no longer an heir under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to these guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Okay, so let's break this down. We see a couple of things from the before picture. The first one, uh, it doesn't seem so bad, but, but as we develop it, you'll understand uh, what's wrong with this picture. He gives the analogy of a son who's under age and under this tutor that's teaching him and preparing him for life. And Paul says that tutor, that teacher for us, is this thing called the law. And it has a job to do. It has a lesson that we need to learn. So what is that lesson? The lesson is this law is God's perfect standard for holy living, for morality, for righteousness, for what holiness looks like in the life and in the, and in the community of God's people. And the lesson is this, we can't do it. It's not possible. We will eventually fall short and we run headlong into our propensity to sin. We wrestle with this. We, we tell ourselves things like, well, that's the last time that's ever gonna happen. I'm not gonna do that again. 
Or we go the other extreme and we justify it saying, well, everybody struggles with this. It's no big deal. I'm just, I'm just like everybody else. And when we do those, that and when we say those things, we're missing the point and we're falling into the trap of the law and we're missing the lesson. The lesson is you can't. You can't tell yourself I'm going to stop sinning and you can't tell yourself it's no big deal. All right? It's beyond our spiritual capability. Now, I've used this analogy before. Um, I mentioned earlier that Gary has uh, gone off to Africa. And one of the things over the years, uh, just a way to serve the Abbott family, I, I frequently am their Uber driver, not technically, but so to speak, uh, and taking them to the airport. And I just love that, the chance to get some time with the family and the kids. I didn't take Gary to the airport this time, but uh, had I taken him, could you imagine, as we're coming down the 417, we hit the 528, instead of going west, I turn east. And I keep driving, and Gary's like, what are you doing? Well, I'm taking you to the place where you can go to Africa. And, and I take him to Cocoa Beach. And I said, okay, Gary, here we go. And I put all of his luggage in a, in a plastic bag, and I hand him a swimsuit. And I said, all right, buddy, have a great trip. Well, we'll see you in a couple weeks. And, and ready? Jump in the ocean and start swimming. All right, now, Gary's in great shape. Gary doesn't need body for life. All right, he, he's, he's, he's strong. But I guarantee you, he might go three, four, five, maybe six miles. Who knows how far he could go? He'd not get into Africa. He doesn't have the physical capability of making it that chasm, crossing that ocean. All right, that's the picture. You and I don't have the spiritual capability of crossing this vast ocean of righteousness to make ourselves right enough, moral enough, to be holy enough, to be acceptable to God. Just can't do it. So the second picture that Paul gives, or the second facet of this picture, is, is one of slavery. He says that we're slaves under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And, and this is a powerful analogy, and it's intended to have the revolting response that it should. God hates slavery. Always has, always will. He hates it in our society. He hates it in our emotional and spiritual lives as well. Now, these elemental spiritual forces of the world, uh, the readers of Galatians would understand it. It was a reference to the Greco-Roman world that they were living in, uh, the physical world um, where these elements, earth, wind, fire, they were R&B and soul before uh, there was such a thing, uh, but where earth, wind, fire, water, these elemental forces were actually something that they believed were controlled by the gods and so, therefore, they needed to engage in a systematic way of, of appeasing these gods through their various forms of worship and sacrifices that they would offer in hopes of having their lives go well. They would go through all kinds of rituals, rituals uh, designed to help them have children, uh, to have better crops. If things were going well, the gods were happy. If things weren't going well, then the, the gods were obviously upset and they had to do more. What they required, though, was a constant flow of worship. And Paul is saying, you're under bondage under these spiritual forces. But it's not just them. Paul says that about us, too. Before we come of age into our faith, we're still trying to please some master or another. Maybe it's the law, maybe not. Because no matter how modern you and I have become, without the gospel, we're still scrambling to appease some God. Maybe the elemental forces we worship are different, but they're still really present. In our society, though, we've just simply cut out the middleman, 
and we worship money and call it by its name. Or we worship success or beauty or youth or sex or power. We've got names for our idols because we think that they'll give us worth in this world. We think that somehow they're going to fill up this, this black hole need within our soul for affirmation that no matter how much affirmation, no matter how much we put in, it's never going to be enough to fulfill that which God created us for because he created us for worship. And when we direct our worship to our idols, we'll keep serving those as slaves for our whole lives. God wants us to direct what he created us for and direct our worship to him. And so Paul paints this, this picture of slavery into idolatry of which we all struggle. It's a really, really tough before picture. And when you then go outside of this passage and you look to the other places where Paul writes about our before picture, you realize that it's really, really bleak. It's ugly. In Ephesians 2.2, for example, he says, Remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's our condition. To Colossians in verses 12 through 14, he says, When you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. So before Christ, we were under the law. We were slaves to our sin without hope, without God in the world, and we were spiritually dead in our sins. It's a really, really tragic before picture, wouldn't you agree? But there's good news. There's a transformation that occurs, and there's an after picture, and there's even better news. To get your body in physical shape, I mean, it's rigorous. You gotta eat, right? You gotta work out, you gotta do all the high intensity stuff, and, and then you just kinda incrementally kinda make your way. Well, the transformation we're talking about here doesn't work like that. The transformation we're talking about here is something you do not do to earn. You actually receive humbly by faith. And when you yield your heart to God and you invite him in and you accept what he's done for you, this is the picture. This is what it looks like afterwards. Let's look at 327. For all of you were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. In October of 1906, there was a German captain who pulled several of the officers and soldiers off of a shooting range, and he ordered them to come to Copenhagen. It was a city just uh, east of Berlin. And he took this, this military escort into City Hall where he ordered some of the uh, soldiers to stand guard outside, telling them no one's to come in the building, no one's to leave, no one's to make any calls to Berlin for the next hour. And once inside there, he pulled the mayor and the treasurer aside and he said, you're under arrest for suspicious bookkeeping practices. And so he threw them in uh, the vehicle and he had the soldiers escort them over to Berlin um, and he stayed and he confiscated the $65,000 in the treasury, which in 1906 was a huge sum of money. Uh, he put it in a bag and he too set out for Berlin. Only problem is, is he didn't make it to Berlin. You see, Captain Kopenek was actually Prussian-born Wilhelm Voigt. And Wilhelm Voigt, um, as a 14-year-old, was a mischievous little guy and, uh, and he got into all kinds of trouble and ended up going to jail for 15 years. 
And in jail, he concocted this plan. He would meticulously piece together the German officer's uniform, make himself a captain, um, and that he would execute uh, this plan that he devised. And so all he had to do was show up in this uniform and say to the soldiers, you, drop your, come here, follow me, grab your weapon, come on, let's go. And, and they did exactly what he said without hesitation. There's power in a uniform. Clothing identifies who we are. It also covers up who we're not. And what Paul is saying here is faith in Jesus through which we're baptized into Christ, it clothes us with Christ when we put our faith in him. In other words, when God sees us, he sees us wearing the garment of Jesus. It's, it's kind of like a uniform. And this is how God identifies us with this Christ-colored garment. All right, so when God looks at you and looks at me, he doesn't see the kid who robbed the gas station or the father who can't stop drinking or the girl who ended her pregnancy prematurely. He doesn't see any of that. Those are clothed with Jesus. He only sees Jesus. And this clothing identifies who we are. It covers who we are not. And those of us who know we have things in our past that need to be covered are so deeply thankful for the things that God has covered from our past. It has some really big implications. Wouldn't you agree to be clothed with Christ? One of those implications is laid out in verse 28. He says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and your heirs according to promise. This is a powerful and important verse in the New Testament. You see, there's no caste system within the kingdom of God. There's no hierarchy of worth via race, via social strata, or gender. We are all clothed with Christ. We are all reflectors of the image of God, which means a black man is every much as a reflector of the image of God as a white man. The image of God as a Syrian is as much true as the image of God as an Israeli. Men and women both are image bearers of God. There's no division. There's no hierarchy for those who are clothed in Christ. We're all viewed by God the same. It covers up who we were. I'm thankful for that. And it defines who we are. Now, don't misunderstand this passage because there is, while there's no hierarchy of worth, there are distinctions between us. And they're beautiful. Doesn't make you any more valuable, not at all. But the image of God as a female is distinct from the image of God as a male. There are distinctions. And Paul is saying they don't make you any more valuable or less valuable, but they are beautiful. Here, Paul is arguing that Gentiles don't need to become Jewish. He's preserving the ethnicity. Do you see that? We're not supposed to be the same, but we are supposed to be one. And I love that, that in our unity, there are differences. That what's, that's what makes unity powerful. Dr. Christina Edmondson says our ethnicity will follow us into heaven, and she's exactly right. Just read Revelation 4, where John is talking about the picture of heaven. And he says right there around the throne are all tribes, all people, all languages, all nations. This is God's plan, to make us all his own, to adopt us all into his family, and we, together as the people of God, are one. 
So these distinctions aren't to be ignored or denied like people will say, well, I don't see color. But instead, we're to celebrate them like the beauty of a multifaceted diamond. I hope you see color because it's beautiful. And God intended it that way. We're not identical, but we are one. We wear that same uniform, if you will. I love that my kids are, uh, have been involved with sports most recently. Uh, my son uh, has played football his whole career, and he just graduated early and headed off to Wake Forest University to play football there. Uh, so we're really proud of him. But one of the things I'm just excited about it, with his involvement with sports, it's the place in our society, one of the places where the potential racial barriers seem to be bridged, and in that context, fierce bonds of loyalty and deep friendship and brotherhood are formed. And I just love that he's been able to experience that. And in that context, he's been able to, to get to know, to enjoy, and even celebrate differences uh, amongst his teammates. And he's been enriched by that experience. But he's also learned a powerful lesson that we're far more like each other than we are different. And we're equally valuable. And my, my, my thought for us this morning is, how much more should this be true of the church? If that happens in sports, this is what Jesus is saying about us, his people. Remember, every ethnicity, every people, every language, every tribe is going to be gathered around the throne, and we're God's family for all eternity. What a beautiful picture of the church, and it's my prayer that his church, that our church, would continue and grow and looking just like this, because it's a beautiful thing. As we read on, we see more about this, this picture, this after picture. Look at verse 4. When the time, uh, or when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, this is a legal designation. And ladies, it applies to you as well, even though he's using the masculine of son. It's the designation of being able to be identified as an heir of Christ. In the Roman world, a childless landowner could actually adopt a slave as a son. And this is such an incredible metaphor for you and for me uh, because the effect of that adoption is twofold. The first one is the slave is redeemed. Now, that sounds like a religious word, and it is, but it's actually a financial word. And what it means is um, a slave could have sold themselves into slavery. They were indentured, and so there's a debt associated with their slavery. And so when the, the Hebrew for this, when the ishtagol, when the, when the redeemer comes along, he's willing to pay whatever price is necessary to buy the freedom of that slave. Whatever debts are, are owed, he will pay those in full, and they will then be canceled as a result because they've been fulfilled. Do you see the picture? Our ishgadol is Jesus. You and I owed a debt that we could never pay. Because of our sin, the wages of our sin is death. And Jesus went to the cross to pay the debt that you and I could never pay and to live the life that we could never live, that we might have salvation, and we just need to receive that precious gift by faith. We've been redeemed. But he just didn't leave us there. He just didn't free us to kind of go our own way. He said, wait a minute. Come join my family. 
I want you to be mine. I want to adopt you into my family. And I want to give you all the rights and privileges of sonship, including you will receive an inheritance of everything that I own. And I freely give it to you out of love for you. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine going from slave to son, from hopelessness of having no future to a future so rich you can't even begin to comprehend it? It's just that great. As I have traveled the world, and as I've gone around the United States, I've encountered so many believers from so many different cultures. But the stories that kind of hit me as I was preparing today were the three particular individuals that I've encountered. Um, and I think their stories stuck out to me because what I want us to do this morning is, is in America, this is a little harder. The before picture just doesn't seem that tragic to us. And it is. But in their stories, I see and they saw what it is they left and what it is they became. I remember a dear friend, Danilo, a former gang member um, who ruled the streets in his city in Honduras until God got a hold of him and adopted him as his own son. Changed his life. He went on to have a beautiful family and to start a leather-making business. Danilo's, you can see it online. It's beautiful stuff that he, they create. And uh, spent his later years ministering to gang members in the streets of San Pedro Sula, Honduras. I remember a young woman who was once so strung out on drugs, so devoid of hope in her communist country, that she decided to commit a federal offense and steal a passport. And of all places, she decided to go to India to end her life. And the day before she was going to take her life, she ran into a guy who told her about Jesus and how he wanted to clothe her with his garments to cover her shame, to cover her past, to cover the things that she wanted no one to know about and was so destitute of life that she wanted to end her life over. And she came to Christ. I remember a young man who was abandoned by his siblings left for dead at age five, threw him off a balcony, tried to kill him. He survived and he became one of the millions and millions of street children roaming the streets of many developing nation cities around the world. For eight, or for the, the next 13 years to age 18, he lived as a street kid until he encountered a family that, that helped him to understand that you're valuable enough to not only be adopted into uh, a family, uh, uh, family here on earth, but into the family of God. And boy, does he love the Lord. And I think of these stories because in each of these stories, the life before Christ is so tragic, so clearly painful, such an ugly, horrific picture of before Christ. And after because they know what they came from, the outpouring of love that they have for Jesus was just so poignant. And I love that. That's what Paul's getting at here for you and for me. We're freed from slavery of having to try to do the law. We've been clothed with the very garments of Jesus and we've been adopted as sons and daughters into his family with full rights and privileges as members of his family. What a beautiful after picture 
And that's why Paul says the spirit of God has been poured out in our hearts and we cry out, Abba, Father, which is the idiom for what we would say, Daddy, Daddy. So there's one more thing that the law wanted to teach us. Do you remember when David in the psalm said, oh, how I love your law, O Lord. It's my meditation all the day. I meditate on your law, Lord, and I love it. Why would he love something that's saying you can't do it? Well, here's the reason why. Because it also teaches us what's pleasing to our Father, what's good, what's moral, what's acceptable. right? And it shows us what's pleasing to him, what holy living looks like. And now that we've come of age into this freedom of our faith and the Spirit's been poured out in our hearts, we can obey God, not out of obligation, but out of choice. The gospel should make us better at obedience, not worse, because gratitude is a much greater motivator than fear. It has far more longevity. Do you see this? And so we want to do good, not so that we can earn something for God, not because we're under the bondage of slavery that if we don't, we're going to miss out on God. It's because we love God and we know that we can offer our lives as a sacrifice and as an act of worship and love and outpouring back to him. So simply this morning, as your heart is overcome with your own before and after story, which is reflected in this passage, let me invite you to cry out, Daddy. To allow the, the truth to move that 18 inches from your head to your heart so that your heart is stirred. And you cry out to him in appreciation for what he's done and then offer your life the best you know how in your obedience as an act of worship, as an act of love, and as an act of devotion to your father who's adopted you as his very own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful passage and picture of our lives before you, Lord, and who we've become because of Christ. My prayer for each of us this morning is that, Lord, we would, we would allow this truth to penetrate our hearts. And Lord, that each one of us in the quietness of our hearts even now would thank you for the extent that you went to demonstrate your love towards us and sending your son to die in our place. And so God, Father, Daddy, we love you. Help us, Lord, not to ever fall back into the trap of the slavery of trying to do the law to appease you, but help us to live in such a way, Lord, not to earn your favor, but to demonstrate just how grateful we are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.